Let's pray together. Father, we praise your name together this morning. Lord, we worship you in spirit and in truth because you have given us your spirit and Jesus Christ is the truth. Lord, we are sinners. We are sinners who do not obey in the way that we should. We are sinners who do not submit ourselves to your word. And Lord, we pray that today you would help us, that you would help us to submit ourselves to you, that you would help us, Lord, to trust in you. Father, we throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ, because apart from him, we have no hope. And so, Lord, we pray that today, that his grace would be sufficient for us, as your word has declared. Father, as we seek to search your word together this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and that, Lord, that we would be changed. That our faith would be strengthened. And that Christ would be glorified. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts, chapter 15. We are beginning a detour in our series through Exodus. We left off last week with the people of Israel expressing that they did not want to hear from the Lord any longer. That they wanted Moses to act as a mediator for them. And we talked about the fact that this was a good desire for them to have, even though their motivations were not good. The only possible outcome of the law of God is condemnation. Because we are so beset by sin that not only can we not obey God's law, we have no hope of ever being able to obey His law. But the Lord, in His great love for us, has sent His Son to obey the law on our behalf and has given us his son's righteousness in exchange for our sin being placed upon him. As a part of our walk through the Ten Commandments, we have established that although the law cannot save us, God's moral law as expressed through those Ten Commandments is still binding upon us as Christians. The calling upon us to love God and to love our neighbor are fleshed out in these commands. And we are compelled to obey them out of love for Christ. And they do not end because they are ultimately rooted in the Lord's nature, not only in His purposes. 
That is a primary difference between the moral law and the remainder of the law of Moses. Is that the law of Moses had to do with God's purposes. The moral law, as expressed in the Ten Commandments, has to do with God's nature. These commandments, the Ten Commandments, were special and significant, which we can easily recognize in how they were given to mankind. All of Israel was gathered around Mount Sinai, and they witnessed the physical manifestations of the Lord's presence coming down, and they heard Him speaking. Every one of them heard the Lord verbally, audibly give them these Ten Commandments. In fact... In Moses' retelling of the giving of the commandments at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 5, we find this at the conclusion in Deuteronomy 5.22. It says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. These words being those ten commandments. Out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me, me being Moses. And so these ten commandments are set apart as unique and special because the Lord spoke them. And then as Moses says, he added no more, even though the Lord did add more laws to Moses up on the mountain, as we find in the rest of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so for Moses to say, and he added no more, is a significant thing there because he is setting those Ten Commandments apart. So the question then becomes, if that is how we understand the Ten Commandments, if that is how we understand God's moral law, what then do we do with the rest of the law? What do we make with the rest of the law of Moses? This question is why we are taking this detour through Acts And then starting next week, we'll be in the book of Galatians. Because the back half of the book of Exodus contains assorted laws for the nation of Israel. And it is important for us to recognize two primary things. Number one, as I've already said, the differing nature of the commandments to the rest of the law of Moses. And also what our proper response is to the law of Moses as Christians. This is what we will find in the book of Acts this morning, in Acts chapter 15. We find a theological conflict within the early church over the law of Moses and how they handled it. That's what we're going to see today. And so let's look together first at Acts 15 verses 1 through 5, where we find the dispute. If you got a bulletin when you came in or picked up one of our sermon listening guides from the back table, you'll see that we have three points this morning, and that is our first one, the dispute. So let's read together Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, And debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Chapter 15 of Acts actually picks up partway through a narrative about Paul and Barnabas sharing with the church at Antioch about all that the Lord had done through them among the Gentiles. Which, if you're unfamiliar with that word, that is a word for anyone who is not descended from Israel by birth. And so you are either a Jew, because you are descended from the Jewish nation, or you are a Gentile, because you are not descended from the Jewish nation. Okay? And so... Paul and Barnabas had gone on a missionary journey, and while on this journey, the Lord had moved mightily among the Gentiles in city after city after city, bringing many of them to faith in Christ and giving them the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This came as a surprise to some of the Christians, because some of the Christians had the belief that this was a Jewish thing. And so... While they are in Antioch, a group of Jewish Christians show up and they start teaching that in order for anyone to be a Christian, in order for anyone to come to Christ, they must be circumcised. Circumcision, if you're unfamiliar, is a removal of skin from a male portion of the body. Okay, And this was something that was established by the Lord in his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14, we find this. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the Lord, in calling out Abraham and telling him that he is going to be the father of many nations, and he is going to be blessed, the Lord says, this is what you are to do. You are to be circumcised, you and all your household, and everyone who comes after you, everyone who is descended from you, you are to circumcise your males. This was the outward sign of Abraham's covenant obedience. This was further reinforced in the law that the Lord gave to Moses. In Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So as I said previously, this was, an, this was a practice that outwardly identified those who belonged to the people of God. And this was remarkably the one thing that they were pretty consistent at keeping. 
Even during periods where Israel was openly rebellious against the Lord, even when they were openly practicing idol worship all throughout the promised land, and they did not care about keeping the law, they seemed to have continued to circumcise their sons according to the law. For them, it became even more than simply a sign of keeping the law. It became a part of their own cultural identity. Apparently, the fear of being cut off from the people of God was sufficiently ingrained in them to the point that they maintained the practice even when other aspects of the law were routinely ignored. And now, the Messiah has come. And the Lord has fulfilled His promise to Abraham that in His offspring, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord has brought about fulfillment to the promise that He made to Abraham. So understandably, there are some who believe that in order to be blessed as an offspring of Abraham, you need to participate in the covenant sign of Abraham. That's, that's their line of thought. In fact, when we consider the Passover meal, where Israel celebrates the Lord passing over them when he came in terrible judgment against Egypt because of the blood of the lamb, we can understand their point even further. If you remember back to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, when I preached on the Passover, we talked at length about how the true Passover lamb is the one whose blood covers all of our sins, not just our doorposts, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. So we know that the Passover meal is a picture, also known as a type, of the sacrificial death of Christ. And the Lord told Moses when instituting the Passover that every male who eats of the Passover meal must be circumcised. Speaking of the Passover in Exodus 12, it says this in, for, in verses 47 through 49. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Speaking of the Passover. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and we keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. I say all of this not to try to convince you that circumcision is necessary, because we're going to see in our passage that it is not. But I say all of this because I want you to understand that these were not necessarily a bunch of cultish nut jobs who just showed up trying to stir up trouble. But that here in the beginning of this conflict, here in Acts 14 and 15, these were likely people whose motivations were good in trying to establish these guidelines. These were probably men who were making these theological connections for the very first time and were saying, but wait a minute, the law has told us that to be a part of the offspring of Abraham, you must be circumcised. And the law has told us that to partake of the Passover, you must be circumcised. And so now here we have Jesus Christ, the true offspring of Abraham, and we have Jesus Christ who is the true Passover lamb, and we have Gentiles who are claiming to be the offspring of Abraham, who are participating in the Passover meal of Christ, and they are uncircumcised. Something doesn't make sense. 
I think that is the origin of this conflict. I think it originated in people seeking to honor God in the right way. And so they come to Antioch while Paul and Barnabas are there, and they begin to debate. And the debate must have been a pretty good one. Because the church in Antioch decides we need to appeal to a higher authority, as it were. Now, we need to understand that the church in Jerusalem, in and of itself, is not necessarily a higher authority. Right? We do not believe, biblically speaking, that there is a hierarchy of churches where we answer to a higher authority. Our church is its own body. But what they are doing is they are seeking out the wisdom of the apostles, because most of the apostles are there in Jerusalem, and the elders in the church in Jerusalem, because that is the first established Christian church. These are the men who walked with Jesus. These are the men who knew him personally, who heard his teaching. These are the ones who have been the Christians the longest. And so they're saying, we're going to appeal to them in understanding what we should do. And so they send a contingent from their church, along with Paul and Barnabas, to the church in Jerusalem to bring this question to the apostles and the elders of the church there. Along the way, they visit various churches and share with them what the Lord has been doing through them. And they're bringing great joy to all of the brethren. Everywhere they go, they say, you have to hear what God is doing. God is bringing the gospel through us to the Gentiles, and Gentiles are turning to faith in Christ. And the Lord is receiving them. The Lord is giving grace to them. The Lord is giving them the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. And it's bringing joy everywhere they go. And this includes the church in Jerusalem. But as they share with the church there... Some who were believers from among the Pharisees chimed in about the Gentiles that they must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So we see the full extension now of what it is that they are seeking. And it does say that these men are believers. They are converted Christians, but they were converted out of a life of being a Pharisee. So they identify as a part of the Pharisaical party. So they are knowledgeable about the law. They know the law extremely well. And so here they are saying, listen, according to the word of God as we know it, in order for these Gentiles to be Christians, they must be Jews first. They must be converted Jews in order to be Christians. These men believed that the blessing was for all nations, but only insofar as they were united to the family of Abraham through conversion to Judaism, through circumcision and keeping of the law of Moses. That is the dispute that is happening here among them. On the one side, you have men like Barnabas and Paul who are saying, no, Gentiles can convert to Christianity just as they are. And then you have on the other side men who are saying, no, they must be Jews. And so that leads us into our passage where we go further and we see the council. The council. Let's look at verses 6 through 19 of Acts chapter 15. This is what it says. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you 
that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people, take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So the apostles, the elders of the church in Jerusalem, and the entire church body of Jerusalem were gathered together for this discussion. And I get that from verse 22, where it says, then it seemed good, in speaking of the conclusion, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. All right, so during the course of this discussion, this debate, the entirety of the church in Jerusalem is there. And the purpose that they had gathered for was to come to a decision on the question at hand. Do Gentile Christians need to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? And we know from the text that there was, quote, much debate. But we're only really told about three of the statements that were made in this time. Peter's, Barnabas and Paul, and James. And within their arguments, we see two lines of thought. We see arguments from experience. Arguments from experience. Peter, earlier in the book of Acts, was a part of the first known conversion of a Gentile. A man named Cornelius. And the Lord had given Peter a vision that made it plain that the gospel was for Gentiles just as much as it was for Jews. And so Peter says, you've heard this story. You know my experience, that the Lord showed me this vision, and then he did this thing. Barnabas and Paul also speak about their experience, having seen the signs and wonders that the Lord has been doing through them among the Gentiles. But there are not only arguments from experience. There are also theological arguments. James After referencing Peter's words, he calls him Simeon, that's his Hebrew name. After referencing his words, he quotes from Amos to connect the inclusion of the Gentiles among God's people to the words of the prophets. He says, look, the Lord has already spoken of this thing in the prophets, where he's talking about how he is going to rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And the Jews thought that that prophecy simply had to do with the Lord restoring the kingdom of Israel. But what the Lord was really speaking of was that he was going to rebuild the tent of David by including those from far off. He's going to bring in the Gentiles who were called by his name. 
And Peter strikes at the true heart of the issue. That those who are in favor of imposing the law of Moses have a fundamental misunderstanding of the law and its purpose. Peter says that the Lord has cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles by faith. And seeking to force them to submit to the law is to place a yoke upon their neck that the Jews themselves were unable to bear. For thousands of years, Israel had been under the law. Thousands of years. And the law produced righteousness in exactly zero people. The law cannot produce righteousness. The law cannot save. The law cannot bring us to God. The law only serves to show us how far we are from God. The law only serves to condemn us. The law only shows us that we need the Lord to save us. And Peter says to the other Jewish believers, you all understand this. You all see here that we are saved by grace. You all know that we can't keep the law. Why are you going to turn around and say that the Gentiles must keep the law that you yourselves, who have known it since before your birth, have not been able to keep? Why would you do this? I think it's really important for us to recognize here that the arguments from experience were not the whole of the discussion. One of the things that we commonly see today is that when debates are occurring between believers, when debates are occurring within the church, and we want to discuss what is the right thing, what is the wrong thing, how should we think about these things, what should we do, we tend to place experience personal lived experience as the thing that carries the most weight. We see this happen time and time again. We see men who are not qualified for ministry because they don't meet the qualifications that the Lord has set forth in Scripture. Maybe they have disqualified themselves by virtue of their sin. And then they go through a period of rehabilitation. And then all of a sudden, they're back in a pulpit somewhere, pastoring a church somewhere, even though they are disqualified. You know what they say? Well, who are you to question the calling that God has placed on my life? They argue from experience when the scriptures plainly say there are certain qualifications for men who are to be pastors. And so what we see here should help us to recognize that if a, if a disagreement is primarily centered around lived experience, that is not the only way that we should settle those disputes. Peter could have stood up and said, well, guys, listen, the Lord gave me a vision and he saved Cornelius. Thus, end of discussion, right? Right? Paul and Barnabas could have got up and said, but the Lord has done these things among the Gentiles. End of discussion. But that's not how they ended the discussion. They spoke theologically. 
They talked doctrinally from Scripture in order to establish what is right and what is wrong. And we should do the same thing. Because we need to understand that God performing an action one time or even a few times does not make that action the new norm. We love to point to extreme examples that we find in the scripture and try to make them normative. Think about the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross placed his faith in Christ just before his death, and Jesus assured him that he would join him in heaven. The thief on the cross was never baptized. He was never united with the church. He never partook of the Lord's Supper. All things that we are commanded to do as Christians. And there's a meme that I see circulating on social media every now and then, kind of pops back up like a bad pimple, that says, if your theology doesn't leave room for the thief on the cross, then you're doing your theology wrong. It tries to make normative an exceptional example. We should not point to the thief's inclusion in the kingdom of God as evidence that we can forsake the Lord's commands of baptism, uniting with the church, or taking the Lord's Supper. We can't look at the thief of the cross and say, so see, baptism is unnecessary. Joining a church is irrelevant because the thief on the cross didn't do that. When in reality, we should recognize that situation as being uniquely sanctioned by the Lord for the purpose of illustrating for us that the grace of God in Christ given to us by faith is all that is ultimately required for us to enter into the kingdom. That's all that we need to have. It doesn't negate the commands of the Lord. We see the same thing in discussions about baptism. I've preached on baptism before, and I've taught on baptism before, and I have made the case that baptism is a thing that exists for the church. It is to be done by the church, as a part of the body of the church. I don't necessarily mean it has to be in this building, but it is something that is done by and for the church. And you know what people immediately say when I say that? Well, what about Philip and the eunuch? What about that? They point to one outlying example and say, no, that's the norm. They point to experience rather than doctrine as the norm. And then they interpret what the scriptures say about baptism through the lens of that experience rather than letting the scriptures stand on their own. We must understand that we need to beware the tendency to begin and end debate on doctrinal issues with someone's experience. Because shaping our theological convictions around experience is not only foolhardy, it is easy to manipulate. Because all it takes is one person saying, but God told me, and then we're off to the races headlong into sin. That's all it takes. Nobody is more easily manipulated than people who place lived experience as the central focus of the Christian life. What we must do instead is shape our convictions around Scripture as the primary ground, with experiences being, being considered but not treated as inerrant. What God chooses to do 
does not mean that we have license to do that. Another example is Rahab. We're told in the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. Do not lie. Well, when the spies come to Rahab's house, what does Rahab do? She lies. And God blesses her for it. He allows her family to survive the destruction and welcomes them into the kingdom. So what does that mean? Should we all get to lie now? We can just ignore the ninth commandment? Of course not. But that's the thinking when you place experience as the central point. And so the council considers experience, but they also consider the scriptures. They consider theological, doctrinal arguments in making their decision. And James concludes his speech. He's the last one to speak. Also, by the way, this is a perfect argument that you can use when someone tells you that Peter was the first pope and he was the most significant person in the early church. It's the perfect example that you can use because who had the last word on this matter? Peter spoke first. Did he have the last word? No. It wasn't until James, one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, spoke that the matter was closed. And that's not to say that James was the most important person in the early church either. But you would think if Peter was the Pope, that when Peter got up and said, hey, listen, this is how it is, everybody would have went, yes, sir. Anyhow, James concludes his speech by giving his judgment. He says that they should not trouble those Gentiles who came to faith in Christ. So James says that imposing circumcision and the law of Moses upon these Gentile believers would be troubling them. And they should not trouble them. So what do they do? Well, they, they send a letter. That's the last point, the letter. Let's look at verses 20 through 29. So James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Verse 20 but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So James suggests that the group send a letter to the Gentile Christians settling the issue of circumcision and law-keeping. But within the letter, he also suggests that they place a group of restrictions upon them. And we're going to talk more about the restrictions in a bit, because before we get there, I want us to notice something. 
the entire body of believers who is there in Jerusalem, the whole church who has heard this debate, is now unified together in what action they should take next. Even those who came into the debate firmly believing that Gentile Christians should be bound by the law have submitted themselves not only to the judgment of the apostles and the elders, but to the will of the whole body of the church. This is important, and it is significant for us to recognize. Those men were very strong in their conviction that those Gentile Christians must be circumcised and they must keep the law of Moses. So much so that they were traveling around to Gentile churches to tell them this. That's how invested they were in this. And now, after having this debate and this discussion, having heard it presented in these ways, it, we are told that the whole church together agreed on these things. The whole church did. And it, this was not a small issue. This was not a disagreement over the color of the carpet. This was a major issue that ultimately had bearing on whether or not Gentiles were seen as truly Christian. This is a massive, massive thing. When there are disagreements among us, we should, number one, approach them theologically. And number two we should be willing to submit to the work of the Lord within the body of believers that we have covenanted together with. Now, there are times that there are doctrinal disagreements that are severe enough that it is necessary to leave. That's where we get into the role of things like confessions of faith, where when we submit ourselves to a church body, we recognize that this confession of faith, are the, this is the guardrails around what we believe. And when the church starts veering off from that into other directions, those are times that we should rightly recognize, I think it might be time to go. But other than that, we should be willing to trust the work of the Lord in the hearts of the other people among us in this church and even if we are outvoted on something that we feel very strongly about, our desire and our heart for unity in the Spirit should be so strong that we're willing to say, I'm with you. I'm with you. We should not be so driven by our own ego and our own understanding that we elevate ourselves to the point of being completely immovable no matter what is taught or said. Everything, everything, we should be willing to at least hear what someone else has to say. Every conversation we enter, apart from Jesus Christ is Lord, we should enter into that conversation holding loosely to the idea that we may be right or we may be wrong. There wasn't a different church for them to run to when things didn't go their way. That's what happens now. Things go in a direction that people don't like. I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere that caters to me. Just what I want. That's where I'm going to go. This was the church in Jerusalem. And so they rightly recognized that what the Spirit revealed to the hearts of the body was right. 
They trusted in the work of the Lord among those people. They trusted in the word of the apostles. They trusted these things. They trusted God's word and were willing to say, we are wrong. I pray that the Lord would grant us the same level of unity here at Evans Creek. That as we search the scriptures together and submit ourselves to them, that we would be moved to set aside our own desires, our own comfort, our own understanding, our own knowledge for the sake of the unity of the body. That is how we should approach these things. And so their judgment together is to send them this letter. And this letter is to be the definitive word on this issue going forward. This is it. We're not going to revisit this question later. You're not going to bring us different evidence that's going to make us reconsider. We're done. We have spoken. This is the answer. Gentiles do not have to follow the law of Moses because the law of Moses does not save. And from this point on, anyone who comes into a body of Gentile believers teaching that they must follow the law of Moses is teaching a false gospel. Up until this point, maybe their motivations have been good. Maybe they're trying to do the right thing. But now that the issue has been settled, if you come in teaching this, you're teaching a false gospel. You cannot be a Christian and believe that you must follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. Those two things do not work together. And we are going to cover that at length over the next eight weeks as we go through the book of Galatians. They even send two brothers from the Jerusalem church along with Paul and Barnabas to deliver the news. Just in case some false teachers come along and say, Paul and Barnabas made that up. That council never happened. They wrote that letter themselves. They were just trying to trick you. You should listen to us. They send along brothers who tell them the same things that are found in the letter. Just so that there is no question. And they give them the, fire, the following requirements. They say, you do not have to be circumcised. You do not have to keep the law. But you do need to do these things. They tell them that they must abstain from meat sacrifice to idols, from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Now, at first glance, this is a little confusing. You don't have to follow the law to be saved, but you do have to follow this. How does this work? Well, first of all, number one, they're giving a rule of life not a rule of righteousness, okay? They're not saying you must also do these things in addition to faith in order to be saved. They are saying faith will produce these things in you. And if you have any question, here's a list. And the reason why these things are focused upon is because these are things that are very visible in Gentile pagan cultures. Sexual immorality is rampant. All of these pagan gods had temples with temple prostitutes. There was all sorts of sexual perversion all throughout these Gentiles. They grew up in it. This is their culture. They don't know any different. And so the Christians from Jerusalem are saying, hey, in case you didn't know, sexual immorality is sinful. It's bad. 
Don't do that. And then they had these other three things, meat sacrificed to idols, blood, and, uh, and abstain from what has been strangled. These are all pagan practices in idol worship. Obviously, meat sacrificed to idols, that's self-explanatory. This is a part of pagan worship celebrations. But one of the things that would often happen in these Gentile pagan cultures is that they would not cut the animals to kill them. They would strangle them so that their blood remained in their bodies. And when they would consume this meat that had been sacrificed to idols, they would consume it with the blood still there. It was often thought of as a way to transfer life from this sacrifice to themselves. This was a pagan practice that was unheard of among the Jews. The law forbid eating of meat with blood still in it. That was not something that they did. And so what they're telling them is, stay away from these idol-worshipping practices. Take no part in idol worship. What we're finding here, these are regulations having to do with the moral law of God. They are to forsake the worship of idols. They are to forsake sexual immorality, the first and the seventh commandments. That's what we're seeing here. So that's why we see these restrictions. There's two reasons. The first is that we are bound by the moral law in a way that we are not bound by the law of Moses. And so they must forsake all practices that violate the morality of God. Not before coming unto Christ, but coming to Christ and being given the Spirit brings about these things through the work of sanctification. They are already justified, right? It is our declared righteousness before God. But sanctification is our gradual growing righteousness. And so after coming to faith in Christ, we now look at the moral law of God and say, this is the rule of life for me now. I forsake immorality and I submit myself to God's law. The law of Moses, with its judicial commands and its ceremonial commands, no longer has any effect. Those things have no bearing. Those things served a purpose, but they are not rooted in the nature of God. And thus, they have passed away. Christ has completely fulfilled them, and they are no longer in effect. They no longer apply. And circumcision is right there with it. The other reason, James makes reference, you may have, you may have heard this and maybe questioned it. In verse 21, he says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That's kind of a strange reason to include these regulations. But here's what he's saying. If Jews see the Gentiles partaking of even the appearance of idol worship, such as with eating meat possibly sacrificed to idols or with the blood still in it, it will stand as an added stumbling block to those Jews coming to faith in Christ by setting Christ as even further away from the Jewish heritage from which he sprang. In other words, there is nothing inherently sinful about eating meat with the blood still in it. It's kind of gross, but there's nothing inherently sinful about it. 
unless it is attached to idolatry. And for these Jews who are in every city in these regions, if they see Gentiles eating meat with blood in it, what are they going to think? Are they going to think, those are Christians who are exercising their liberty? Are they going to think, those are pagans worshiping a false god? And so the reason is twofold, because the first part of it is, you are to have a new changed morality that is in line with the nature of God. But the second part of it is, you must consider your witness. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8, in talking about meat sacrificed to idols. He says that the good of our brother should outweigh our own earthly desires. They want to eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul says, you probably shouldn't do that because it's a stumbling block to these other believers who don't know better. Consider them as more significant than yourself. Even in being given the liberty to cast off the law of Moses with its ceremonial and judicial requirements, the Gentiles are bound to the moral law and are also commanded to consider their witness to unbelieving and believing Jews alike. We should, in kind, recognize that we are saved by grace through faith, as Peter says in verse 11. But we should also not take our liberty as license to sin or be a stumbling block to others. The law of Moses has been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and thus it is no longer a burden to us who are in Christ. This is what kept the Gentiles from having to obey. The law of Moses served the purpose of pointing to Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus has already come. We no longer need the law of Moses to point us to Jesus. He's here. But here's the truth. For those of you who are not in Christ, you are still bound under the law. You are still a slave to your own sin. You are still under a curse. And I urge you today to cry out to the Lord that you would be saved, to respond to his word in faith, trusting fully in his grace, that his faith would cleanse your heart and that you would know him. Trust in the Lord for salvation, not in the law, because it is Christ alone who saves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have removed the burden of the law for those of us who are in Christ. Father, we are hopeless to keep it on our own. And so, Lord, we thank you for your obedience that you have given to us, for your righteousness that you have given to us in Christ. Lord, I pray today that we would submit ourselves fully to Christ in all things and trust in him and not in ourselves. And Lord, I pray for any here who don't know him, that Lord, they would turn from their sins, that they would repent and believe the gospel, that Christ would be their Lord today. We pray this in his name. Amen.